Well, good morning again. Happy Easter. All right. Come on. He is risen. All right. If you're like, am I confused? You're wearing pastels again. Like, what's Hey, Easter continues. The tomb is still empty. We are resurrection people. If you're like, did they forget to take down the Easter decor? No. Like, we want to keep the celebration uh, going in this church. Part of the church calendar, too, is to celebrate that. Like, we need reminders in the midst of the pain and the suffering and the sin in our lives and the sin we encounter. I mean, all of it, that the tomb is empty and that Jesus is bringing about and working about his purposes. And so, again, thanks for gathering this morning. Thank you for bringing the church into this place. For those of you who gathered for Crosspoint at home, thanks for bringing the church into your living room. And if you're somebody that's new to Crosspoint, we've never been introduced. My name is Jamie. It is my great joy and privilege to be one of the pastors here and to open up God's word with you. Uh, We took a break for a couple weeks. We were like nine weeks into a series on the life of Abraham called A Field Guide to Loving God, where we're looking at his life to instruct us in many ways of what it looks like to do the thing that is the biggest thing we're called to is to love God. And part of that is looking at the mistakes even that Abraham makes, and he makes lots of them. But in that, we see God's love for him. Subsequently, we see God's love for us, and we get to live just in glad response to that love. And so we spent about nine weeks on that, and we took a break for Holy Week, for Palm Sunday, and obviously Good Friday and Easter, and we are resuming uh, this morning. And so let me just do a quick recap as to where we are in the the story, all right? This little bit of a a rewind of sorts. There's this line in Genesis 18. We're going to be in 19 today, but towards the end of Genesis 18, it says, Won't the judge, and this is Abraham speaking, won't the judge of the whole earth do what is just? And that comes in the context of this man, Abraham, that has been called by God. God says, I'm gonna make you into a great nation. I'm gonna give you all this land. You're gonna be a blessing to the entire world. And at this point in the story, Abraham is very old. He's pushing 100. His wife is almost 90. They don't have any children. Wondering how this is gonna happen. But God, right prior to these verses, has reiterated his promise hey, next time, this time next year, I will return and your wife, Sarah, will be with child, all right? And she laughs at it and he's like, did you laugh? She's like, no. He's like, you did laugh. And she's like, you're God, you're right, I did laugh, right? And so there's, there's all of that. And then there's this scene that takes place where God has visited Abraham along with these two men, which we know are angels. And they have heard this outcry And they've come to investigate it. There's this outcry of injustice, of sin, of rebellion that's taking place from the land of Sodom and Gomorrah, all right? And so Abraham knows this. His nephew Lot, who he loves deeply, who had been traveling with Abraham, and at one point they had to split up because they were so prosperous, like their shepherds, their herdsmen were arguing over who had the land and the best pasture and all of that. And so Abraham says to Lot, you have the first pick of the land. And Lot surveys it and says, ooh, the valley, Sodom and Gomorrah, that area looks appealing. And so he goes and moves toward that land, eventually becomes a citizen of that community. But there's terrible evils there. And God has come to investigate that and is likely going to destroy that land. And so Abraham, at the end of chapter 18, when he says those words, won't the judge of the whole earth do what is just, he is pleading with God, please spare Sodom. What if there are 50 righteous people? Are you gonna destroy the whole thing? And God says, no, if there's 50 found, cool, I won't destroy it. And then Abraham is like, Abraham's like, what if there's 40? What if there's 30, 35, 20, 25, right? Like he kind of goes through this whole thing and eventually gets to the point of like, if there are 10 righteous, the Lord says he won't destroy it. Like he's calling on the compassion of God. Like you won't destroy the innocent along with the wicked, will you? Like you're just. And so where we pick up 
the story now is the start of chapter 19, and these two angels, all right, have left Abraham and, and the Lord, all right, and they have gone to investigate, and this is where we pick up the story. Now, a couple of things. If you know anything about Sodom and Gomorrah, all right, if you have any sort of Bible background or even just culturally know of that, you know what I'm about to read. Like, it doesn't go well for Sodom and Gomorrah, okay? Admittedly, when I was looking at the preaching calendar, of which I'm responsible for, I put it together, right? I'm looking through this and like, oh, the text after Easter. Welcome back, my friends. The tomb is empty and God is destroying Sodom and Gomorrah. Like, that's where we are this morning. And I'm like, uh, is there like an intern that can pre... Anyway, but um, so I'm wondering, like, why did I do this? But here's, here's what we need to think through and be reminded of this. How do you approach the scriptures? How do you come to the scriptures Do you come above the scriptures, bringing your thoughts and your opinions and your objections and your, you know, just like, well, I've got this vantage point, or do you come under the scriptures saying, God, this is your word, speak to me. I know there are things that are hard, there are things that are difficult, there may be things that are hard for me and my modern Western sensibilities to make sense of, but I want to trust you in it. And I think if we come with that posture this morning, we will actually come away with some warning, certainly, but also an encouragement, a reminder of God's grace and God's provision. The psalmist says it this way in Psalm 119, how sweet your word is to my taste, sweeter than honey in my mouth. I gain understanding from your precepts. Therefore, I hate every false way. Your word is a lamp for my feet and a light on my path. May we experience even this difficult text I'm about to read in that way, that it is like honey in the mouth, that it is sweet, that is there to guide us, to direct us, to say, hey, we're going the wrong way, and that God in his love might move us in a new direction, and that it might be this lamp, that it might light our way. And so I want you to have a Bible in front of you. There are ones in the the pews this morning. If you brought one, you can turn to Genesis 19. You can also go to cplife.church on your phone, and you will see an image there that says sermon notes, and you can click that. The text will be there, as well as any of the things I put up on the slides or some space to take notes. I encourage you to follow along. Again, it's God's word that brings the sweetness. It's God's word that brings the direction. It's God's word that brings the light. Not my thoughts, not my opinions, not my take on things. We need to hear from God. So I want to go ahead and read this. I'll also just make note, there's one point uh, where it's rather descriptive. Um, I'm going to use, I'm reading out of the CSB. I will use a different translation at that, at that point, just in case there's any, the younger ears, but um, you'll track with it, I'm sure. So Genesis 19 verses 1 to 29 says this. The two angels entered Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting in Sodom's gateway. And when Lot saw them, he got up to meet them And he bowed with his face to the ground and said, My lords, turn aside to your servant's house. Wash your feet. Spend the night. Then you can get up early and go on your way. No, they said, we would rather spend the night in the square. But he urged them so strongly that they followed him and they went into his house. And he prepared a feast and he baked unleavened bread for them and they ate. But before they went to bed, the men of the city of Sodom both young and old, the whole population surrounded the house and they called out to Lot and said, where are the men who came to you tonight? Send them out to us so that we may know them. In the language here, it is one of sexual violence is what they're speaking of. Verse six, Lot went out to them at the entrance and he shut the door behind him and he said, don't do this evil, my brothers. Look, 
I've got two daughters who haven't been intimate with a man. I'll bring them out to you and you can do whatever you want to them. However, don't do anything to these men because they have come under the protection of my roof. At this point, if you're like, what does Lot think? Yeah, it's a great question. All right. We'll get back to that. All right. Verse nine, get out of the way, they said, adding, this one came here as an alien, but he's acting like a judge. This is what the men of Sodom are saying. Now we'll do more harm to you than to them. And they put pressure on Lot and they came up to break down the door. But the angels reached out, brought Lot into the house with them, shut the door. And they struck the men who were at the entrance of the house, both young and old, with blindness, so that they were unable to find the entrance. Then the angel said to Lot, Do you have anyone else here, son-in-law, your sons and daughters, or anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of this place, for we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against its people is so great before the Lord that the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and he spoke to his sons-in-law who were going to marry his daughters. Get up, he said, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But his sons-in-law thought he was joking. And at daybreak, the angels urged Lot on, get up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he hesitated. But because of the Lord's compassion for him, the men grabbed his hand, his wife's hand, and the hands of his two daughters, and they brought him out and they left him outside the city. And as soon as the angels got them outside, one of them said, run for your lives. Don't look back. Don't stop anywhere on the plane. Run to the mountains or you will be swept away. But Lot said to them, no, my lords, please. Your servant has indeed found favor with you and you have shown me great kindness by saving my life. But I can't run to the mountains. The disaster will overtake me and I will die. Look, this town is close enough for me to flee to. It's a small place. Please let me run to it. It's only a small place, isn't it? So that I can survive. And he said to him, all right, I'll grant your request about this matter too, and I will not demolish the town you mentioned. Hurry, run to it, for I cannot do anything until you get there. Therefore, the name of this city is Zoar. Verse 23, the sun had risen over the land when Lot reached Zoar. Then out of the sky, the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, burning sulfur from the Lord. He demolished these cities, the entire plain, all the inhabitants of the cities, and whatever grew on the ground. But Lot's wife looked back and became a pillar of salt. And early in the morning, Abraham went to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and all the land of the plain. And he saw that smoke was going up from the land like the smoke of a furnace. And so it was, when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham, and he brought Lot out of the middle of the upheaval when he demolished the cities where Lot had lived. This is the word of the Lord, and in his kindness and his grace, he has given us a text like this, as difficult as it is, as many questions as it raises, things that maybe at first glance were like, this doesn't seem right, It is his kindness to give us these words on this day, in this time, in this place. Not just for people that are out there, but for us in here. What does this have to communicate to you and me? Whether you come in this morning as somebody that's just exploring Christianity, maybe you got dragged here by a friend, you don't know if you believe any of this, or somebody that's been a follower of Jesus for as long as you can remember, or anywhere in between, this text has something for us in it.
And so what I want to do this morning is just look at this kind of in, in two parts. The first being, let's look at the darkness and the destruction that takes place. All right? And then from there, let's look at the deliverance that the Lord brings for the undeserving. And we'll spend some time at the end just asking ourselves, in light of this, what is the Lord inviting us to, calling us to? What sort of decision is before us? What would it look like to take all of this and to realize God's grace and his provision for us and then how we should live? Because God is not interested in robbing you of joy. The enemy will speak that saying, if you obey God, if you do this, you'll miss out. No, God is very much interested in your joy. And he gives us his word to instruct us, to guide us, to remind us of our failures and mistakes and God's abundant grace, his compassion, his mercy, so that we would live in the joy that he has for us. And friends, as hard as it may be to believe, Genesis 19 guides us toward greater joy. So let's look at this. So there's this darkness and this destruction, right? You see this in the first nine verses in particular, and then from 23 to 28 speaks of this land being destroyed. And there's some clues early on in the text, in case if you don't know anything about Sodom and Gomorrah, there are even some things just as it starts out that clue us in that there is a moral bankruptcy, a moral darkness and depravity that has enveloped the land. And so throughout this text, it speaks of the fact that it's, the day is drawing to a close, like there's this darkness, it's evening. And then there's also, as there's rescue taking place, like there's this light that is shining. So what does it look like to rightly understand the darkness, to know the light that we're invited into? And it starts out this way by just saying the two angels entered Sodom in the evening. And so, yes, that's just accurate as to like when they arrive, but it also is pointing us to this deeper reality. Like the translation of that word evening really literally means this like blackness or darkness. You think of the beginning account of the Bible, that the world, everything was void, it was empty, it was darkness, it was chaos. I mean, this is what happens to Sodom when it says that God not only destroys the people, like he levels the land, everything is burned up, it's back to the place of chaos. This is where things go when we don't follow what God would actually have for us in the life that he invites us into. So there's this darkness. And then it tells us this, before they went to bed, so Lot at this point, like Abraham has done throughout this account of his life, has extended hospitality. He's welcomed these men in. And he says, who are angels, before they went to bed, the men of the city of Sodom, both young and old, the whole population surrounded the house. And so it's this way of the scripture saying, listen, it's not just the young people, right? It's not just, oh yeah, we can chalk that up to their crazy youthfulness, right? It's young and old, it's the whole population. There is a moral darkness, an immorality, a blackness, a depravity that exists in this particular city, in this particular culture, a culture that is bent on doing what they want, when they want, with who they want, and they won't allow anyone to stand in their way. And so what is happening here, right, really what they're advocating for, they're literally beating down the door until Lot is actually rescued, right? Is it literally is this mob mentality of sexual violence, of homosexual rape. I mean, it's just about as dark as it can get. That's what's taking place in here, right? And so we have to ask ourselves, like, okay, what's going on here? Why, you know, like, why is all this happening? All right. And then we learn as it moves out of the description of the darkness, 
that there's this destruction. Then out of the sky, the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, burning sulfur from the Lord. Notice the language. It's from the Lord. He demolished these cities, the entire plain, all the inhabitants of the cities, and whatever grew on the ground. Right? And so it's like, at this point, everything has been destroyed. It's decimated. Now, I think, if we're honest, this raises questions. This raises questions for me. My guess is it raises questions for you, too. And you know it would raise questions for your friends and family members or neighbors or coworkers, people you care deeply about that would read a passage like this and be like, what in the world is happening? Like, in, for instance, it would likely bring up some variation of this question. How can a loving God judge and destroy people? Like, how should we be thinking through that? How can he do this? Well, one thing, I think we just need to stop and ask ourselves a question for a moment, just at least to to start here. I don't pretend that this will answer everything, but I think one of the things we have to recognize, let me ask you this question. Have you ever had your blood boil? Have you ever gotten so angry over an injustice, over sin that you see being committed against someone else or against you? And if you're honest, I'm sure the answer is yes, that there is something, and even if it turned into unrighteous anger at some point, there was something that welled up in you that's like, this is not right. That part of how we're designed, if we take the Bible at its word that we're made in God's image and likeness, then part of it is that when we have anger of the righteous kind, It's because we see something that's broken. We see sin. We see rebellion. We see things that grieve our heart. And we know it grieves the heart of God. And so when we think about this loving God, part of God's love is manifested in the fact that he actually has this wrath and this anger. At the end of the day, friends, you and I do not want a God of love without a God that's also not a God of wrath. Like those things go together. In the book, The Reason for God, Tim Keller quotes this woman, Becky Pipper, and she talks about just the the everyday reality of how it is that sometimes we get angry, right? She says this, think how we feel when we see someone we love ravaged by unwise actions or relationships. Do we respond with benign tolerance as we might towards strangers? Far from it. Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. God's wrath, it is not a cranky explosion, like mine can be, right? It's not a cranky explosion, but is settled opposition to the cancer, which is eating out the insides of the human race he loves with his whole being. And so at one level, we just need to know, when we see and read about the wrath of God, know this, it's not because he's cranky or he woke up on the wrong side of the bed or somehow he's not an unrighteous anger. Like if you and I as fallen sinful human beings can actually have a righteous anger, wouldn't it make sense that the God who's created everything, who best knows how things are meant to function and to flourish, to bring him glory and that we might experience joy, might look out over his world, look out over his creation, look out over a place like Sodom and Gomorrah and have this wrath, this anger, this judgment because he knows it's not right. He knows that they're not living according to the design that God has for them. And not only are they robbing themselves of joy, they're robbing other people of joy, there's just this, these consequences to their actions. So again, you can't have a God of love without wrath unless you just want a sentimental, touchy-feely sort of God. 
You actually want a God with wrath because it's a God that says, I'm going to set things right. And it also frees you and I up. You want to know how? Because I don't have to be that wrathful person. All right. I can trust. No, God will set that thing right. God does hear the cries of injustice. God does hear he is near the brokenhearted. I do not need to go on some sort of revenge tour for the Lord. Right. He will take care of things. So to actually believe in both the love and the wrath of God should lead to more peace and flourishing in the world, perhaps as counterintuitive as that may seem. And so one of the things I think would help, be helpful, if we were to travel back a few hundred years, all right, there was a, a, a gathering, this convening, a, a, a church meeting, a church council of, of sorts, all right, that took place in 1563, and they were seeking to answer some theological questions. And it has come to us to become, become known as the Heidelberg Catechism. Maybe you grew up in a, in a church where there was catechisms, right? The Heidelberg or the Westminster, different things. And oftentimes there's this back and forth of questions that are posed, trying to get at like, what are the big questions of life? And then succinct responses, or at least as succinct as like pastors and theologians can be, right? Um, and so the Heidelberg Catechism starts out with this question. And I think if we wrestle with this question for a moment, it'll help us in our study of Genesis 19. It helps get to the heart of what actually is going on. And so here's how this series of questions, this catechism starts out. What is your only comfort in life and in death? So it poses this big sort of existential question, right? What is your only comfort in this world, in life, but also in death? And then as these theologians worked through their answer, and I'm not going to read all of it, but here's the opening couple of lines. This is what is so key for us to understand what's happening here and the life that God designed, designed for us and desires for us. So here's the answer. What's our only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul, both in life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Did you hear that? The answer, where does comfort come from? It comes from recognizing, submitting to, surrendering to this reality. I am not my own. You are not your own. But belong body and soul, both in life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. The cultural narrative is your life belongs to you. Your body belongs to you. It's your mind. It's your dreams. It's your aspirations. You do you. Whatever feels good to you. And it's a pursuit of self that leads to separation from God. This is why Paul would write, as it pertains particularly even to matters of sexuality, he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 to 20, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? And then there's that line again. You are not your own. For what? For you were bought at a price. What was the price? Jesus' own life. So glorify God with your body. We have to understand and recognize that what, is, what the battle is here that we're seeing in Genesis 19, and it's something, it's not just modern like today, this is an ancient problem. It goes back to Genesis 3, is this pursuit of self. I want to do what I want to do. I want my will to be done. I want my kingdom to expand. I will not listen to anyone unless it aligns with that I already believe. How dare you tell me how to live my life. Unless we think for a moment, yep, that's out there in the culture. It's here. Want to know how I know it's here? It's in my heart. And if you're honest, it's in your heart as well. I finished a book recently by Alan Noble, who entitled his book this, You Are Not Your Own. He says this, 
since at least the early 20th century, the predominant existential question for those in the West, people like us, has been, who am I, right? Who am I? I gotta find myself, right? But the better question is, whose am I? Who is this being to whom I belong, and how do I belong to them, and what are the implications of this belonging on my life? Friends, this is what we need to ask, because it's not just a problem out there. Like this Genesis 19 issue is in your heart and my heart, this propensity to forget that we've been bought with a price, to think for a moment, to believe the lie that, yes, I am my own. No, no, I belong to Jesus. You belong to Jesus. We are not our own. Whose am I? So what we see here are a group of people that have no surrender to whose they are. They're living like, no, this is my life and I want to do what I want to do. And so if we think about this, I mentioned it a moment ago, here's what plays out. When you and I choose self, when we pursue that, what you end up having is separation. Not only separation from one another, because it destroys community, but even at a bigger level, separation from our God, from our maker. That in fact, one of the ways we should think about separation from God is what the scriptures refer to as hell. To be away forever from the presence of God is hell. And the trajectory of self leads to separation. In his wrestling through this, C.S. Lewis, who if you know his story, was an atheist for a long time, wrestled with things, debated things, and God just like literally like hounded him with his grace, right? Lewis becomes a follower of Jesus, but part of his gift to the church, to the body, all right, not that he got everything right, because he didn't, all right, but part of his gift was he wrestled with these big theological issues about hell and judgment, all of these things, questions we still ask today, questions that come up in a text like Genesis 19, and he, he wrestled with me, tried to articulate, okay, what happens? How should we think about these things? Like, what happens when we choose self? And one of his insights in regards to choosing self leading to separation, to ultimately hell, is that is not just someday off in the future. Like, that can happen right here and right now. That's not to say that hell is not an actual literal place, a place of judgment. Like, I believe that. I believe that's what the scriptures teach. But I also believe that there's aspects of it that can start right here, right now. Like, look how Lewis describes this. He says this, hell, or this separation from God's presence, begins with a grumbling mood. You ever been there? It's like, yeah, every morning, right? All right, so hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others. But you are still distinct from it, he says at this point. You may even criticize it in yourself and wish you could stop it. But there may come a day when you can no longer then there will be no you left to criticize the mood or even to enjoy it, but just the grumble itself going on forever like a machine. It is not a question of God, quote, sending us to hell. In each of us, there is something growing which will be hell unless it is nipped in the bud. He continues then, he says this, there are only two kinds of people. There are those who say to God, thy will be done, or those to whom God in the end, he looks at them and says, thy will be done. All that are in hell choose it. Without that self-choice, it wouldn't be hell. No, no soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. What Lewis is driving at is this, trying to boil it, and it's very simple. 
It's very, I'm not saying it's easy, but there's a simplicity to it. Either you go to God and you say, Lord, thy will be done. I surrender my life because it's not ultimately mine. It's been purchased by you. I want to belong to you. I want to follow you. I want to trust you. I want to be your disciple, Jesus. Or you continue on a trajectory that says, it's my life. I want to do with my life and my mind and my money and my body and everything. All right. And the Lord simply says, okay, then your will can be done. And the trajectory of that will being done leads to further separation from God, away from his presence, and ultimately results in a judgment that actually is hell. And it can start right here, right now, and take you to that place of this eternal torment. Like, that's where things end up. Now, when we look at Genesis 19, can we see for a moment, it is a group of people that have come together and basically said, we are going to live for self. We want our will to be done. There is no one here that is crying out like, Lord, save me. And God's like, oh, sorry, too late. Like, that's not the reality. He is literally giving them what they want. They don't want to be in his presence. And it leads to this judgment. Now, that's a heavy, heavy word. And I don't pretend that that like solves any question that you might have. But I think this is how we have to consider these matters. Now, look with me for a moment at God in his grace and his mercy, what I would say is this deliverance for the undeserving. What we have here is God rescuing Lot and his family. And can we agree for a moment that Lot is not a perfect man? How about the whole, in case you missed it, hey, don't do anything to these men. I brought them into my home. I'm responsible for them. I got to take care of them. Nothing bad can happen to them. But here, you can have my virgin daughters. I mean, it's insane. It's like, what is he thinking? Lot is not rescued because he gets it right, because on his own, he's perfectly righteous. He is a mess up. He rebels. He gets confused. He trips up. He, he does not choose the glad surrender to God. At times, he's doing what he wants. That's why he chose Sodom in the first place. Ooh, that looks appealing. But what's so fascinating is the apostle Peter would write about Genesis 19, many, many years later, hundreds of years later, and he would write this in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 6 to 9. And if he reduced, this is what God did, if he reduced the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes and condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is coming to the ungodly, and he rescued, do you notice the descriptor? Righteous Lot. Righteous Lot? Here are my daughters, righteous Lot? Like, what in the world? But calls him righteous Lot. Distressed by the depraved behavior of the immoral, For as that righteous man, again, righteous describing Lot, lived among them day by day, his righteous soul was tormented by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue his godly from trials. So he's writing to a group of people that are enduring hardship and trial. And he's like, hey, God knows how to rescue godly, righteous people like Lot. He'll take care of you. It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Cool. But can we we talk about Lot for a moment? Like, is he really righteous? Now, here's the thing. It is not the quality or the intensity or the commitment to your faith that saves you. It is the object of your faith that saves you. And so what this is telling us is that Lot, even though he was imperfect and failing and messed up all the time and did not win that of the year at any level, right? All of these things, he did all these things. And yet there was a belief in God, a trust in God. Doesn't mean he was to be emulated in all ways. It believes the, there was some aspect of his life. And what we see here is, friends, it's grace. It is mercy. It is compassion. 
that God then, as we see in this text, I mean, there's protection, there's part of God's grace and compassion and warning, and then there's this ultimate deliverance. I mean, look at this. But the angels reached out and they brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door and they struck the men who were at the entrance of the house with this, with this blindness. Do you see his protection and care? Have you stopped, have I stopped to be amazed amidst the hardship and the pain and things maybe that we feel like we haven't been protected from? Like, you got here today, right? I mean, I didn't stop to thank, thank God that I made it safely. Like, God's protection, that breath that you just took in, did, I didn't thank God for that, did, did you, right? That your heart's still beating and pumping blood through your body and your lungs are taking in air. Like, do you see all the ways that God is upholding this universe by the word of his power, right? Like, that he's doing that, we see God's protection. He pulls Lot in. He continues to care for you. We see his kindness in warning. The angel said to Lot, do you have anyone else here, a son-in-law, your sons and daughters, or anyone else in the city that belongs to you? Get them out, for we're about to destroy this place. And so Lot does, and he goes and tries to warn his sons-in-law who are betrothed to be married. They would have been referred to culturally then as sons-in-law, even though they weren't married yet. And they're like, ah, there's, there's good old dad-in-law joking again, right? They think he's joking. But there's this warning. And then there's this deliverance. At daybreak, the angels urge Lot on, get up, take your wife and your two daughters are here, or you will be swept away in the punishment of the city. Did you notice Lot's response? But he hesitated. I am encouraged that that's in there. There's this humanity of Lot. Because can we be honest for a moment? Even in the painful places, sometimes we just get used to it. You have God's people delivered out of Egypt, and what do they do? Eventually, they're like, can I just go back to Egypt? Really? You want to go back to slavery? But there's hesitation in my life. I think if you're honest, there's hesitation. Like, do you believe God's promises? Do you believe the way God is leading you? Or is it sometimes just easy? Let's just default to what is familiar, even if it robs me of life and of joy takes me away from experiencing God's presence. But I love this. After he hesitated, they're just like, hey, God's grace. God is going to save. Jesus said he's not going to lose any of those that he came. And this is a picture of that. And because of the Lord's compassion, or it can be translated as mercy, for him, the men grabbed Lot's hand, his wife's hand, and his daughter's hands, and led them outside of the city. This is grace through and through. And then by the time we get to the end of this section where we see Abraham back in the story, in the account, and he's looking out, and Abraham who pleaded with God, please spare Sodom if 10 righteous people, and God had said, okay, and then he sees the smoke, which means what? There weren't even 10 righteous people. And Abraham has to be wondering at this point, like, what's happened? What happened to my, my nephew Lot? What's happened to his family? And we get this little comment here. It's Moses that's writing the book of Genesis, and we get this sort of observation, sort of a way to view this whole thing. And it says, so it was. When God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham. And he brought Lot out of the middle of the upheaval when he demolished the cities where Lot had lived. This gives us the clue as to what happened. That Abraham had pleaded, had interceded for Lot, and because of his intercession, God spared him. And friends, it's not Abraham for us. 
we have the Lord Jesus himself who is interceding for us. And not only is he interceding for us, but the Lord Jesus took the fire, the wrath of God that should have been delivered to you and me, poured out on us, destroyed us, to disintegrate us, to do all of that was instead put on Jesus. This picture of judgment we have to see ultimately pointing to the fact of what Christ has done for us, what he has absorbed. This is why the apostle Paul would write in Romans 3, for all have sinned. Every last one of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're all Sodom. We all deserve death. We all deserve judgment. And he says this, we all fall short and are justified by his grace as a gift, his compassion, his mercy through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Redemption means he purchased you. You are not your own. You belong to Jesus, whom God put forward. This Jesus, whom God put forward as this big theological word, as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith, meaning the wrath of God. He absorbs the wrath of God and turns it to favor. That this is what Jesus has done. The fire and the brimstone that, was, that fell on Sodom fell on Jesus in your place and in my place. This was to show God's righteousness. So yes, this is a hard text. Yes, it should serve as a warning when we pursue self, but also know this, God loves to rescue. God loves to redeem. God extends his grace and his compassion. He's inviting us. Will you trust him? Will you follow him? Will you thank him for the times that he has led you by the hand? Even if you were kicking and screaming, he's like, I've got you. I love what John Stott says about this idea of propitiation. Hear these words. He says this, why is the propitiation necessary? This absorbing, this turning away of wrath into favor? Well, the pagan answer is because the gods are bad tempered, right? You gotta make a sacrifice kind of thing, subject to moods and fits and capricious. The Christian answer is because God's holy wrath rests on evil. There is nothing unprincipled, unpredictable, or uncontrolled about God's anger. It is aroused by evil alone. And then look at this. According to the Christian revelation, God's own great love propitiated his own holy wrath through the gift of his own dear son who took our place, bore our sin, and died our death. And then look at this line. Look at the gospel here. Can we celebrate this? Thus God himself gave himself to save us from himself. What a beautiful, succinct summary of the grace and the mercy, the compassion of God. A God who is holy and just, a God who has to punish, that he would cease to be just if he didn't punish sin, but rather than punish us, right? Took that upon himself. Thus God himself gave himself to save us from himself. And so as we wrap up here, in light of this text, as difficult as it is, I believe it brings us to a place that we got to think through like practically, what does it look like? What decision is being asked of you? This same text is referenced. I'll just read it real quickly as we close. Luke 17, just as it was in the days of Noah, this account in Genesis 19 very much parallels the flood. In the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the son of man. People went on eating and drinking, marrying and being given in marriage until the day Noah boarded the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. It will be the same as it was in the days of Lot. Genesis 19, people went on eating, drinking, buying, selling, planting, building. Sounds like our normal week, right? 
But on the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven, destroyed them all. It will be like that on the day the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, a man on the housetop whose belongings are in the house must not come down to get them. Likewise, the man who is in the field must not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever tries to make his life secure will lose it. And whoever loses his life will preserve it. This is the invitation that the gospel makes to us. Will we surrender? Will we trust Jesus, the one who gave up his life so that we could have newness of life? So ask yourself this, what, this question as we get ready to pray, to continue in worship. Are you looking back? What are the things that you're still longing for? What are those tired old things that you keep making sacrifices for? an addiction, a relationship, some pursuit of something that that'll bring happiness, or I need that thing in order to be happy. It's a looking back. It's saying, no, I think I want to go back to the place of slavery. That's familiar. That's what I know. And God is saying, no, no, I'm wooing you. I'm inviting you. I'm taking you by the hand. I'm leading you to a place of deliverance. Let us not fight against God's purpose and God's design for us. You pursue self, it leads to separation. But we see Jesus denying himself. We see Jesus who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And now we're invited to follow him, friends. And that's the best possible way to live. So let me pray for us, and Pastor Eric's gonna come up and and lead us as we continue in our, our service. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your mercy, your grace, your kindness. Thank you for this text. May it be like sweet honey to us. May it guide us, warn us, instruct us. And may it be a light illuminating the path that we are to follow. We want to follow you, Jesus. Not because we have anything to earn. You have done it all. But we know that life is found in your presence. Thank you for making that possible. Continue to work in us, God. We pray for your glory and our joy. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.